The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so welcome, welcome. So I'd like to start uh, this talk with a little story. Emphasis on story. It's a, uh, it's you know one of these stories that uh, you know it has a it comes from the suttas, and it has a teaching point, which will become abundantly clear, I think. But I'd like to build on it. And this story comes from um, the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses of the Buddha, if that matters. It doesn't matter so much. But So there was this uh, individual, his name was Piasi, and he wasn't a follower of the Buddha. And in fact, he, had, he was a, I'm not sure if he was a teacher or if he belonged to a different community that had different views, had different ideas than the Buddha. And one particular view that he had that he was really uh, espousing and teaching was there are no consequences to actions. doesn't matter what you do. You can do good things and, you know, maybe something good will happen, maybe not. You can do bad things, maybe something bad will happen, maybe not. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. You know, maybe like today that sounds a little bit silly, but I think that there are parts of our lives we think, like, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, I'll do this. There will be no consequences to this small thing. Thinking these thoughts that are filled with hatred or something, or, or oh, it doesn't matter that I don't, when the cashier makes a mistake and gives me too much money, it doesn't matter that I don't give the extra money back or whatever it is. There's ways, and sometimes we think that, oh yeah, it doesn't matter. But this person, Piasi, in the sutta is saying, nothing has any consequences. And if we think about this, this is, you know, 2,600 years ago, before there was science, or even investigation. And so there was, this was a real question, this was alive. Like, why, do, why are things the way that they are? How did I get here? Where are we going? You're like, this was a real legitimate question. And so one was like, it doesn't matter. And you could see, because they might say, well, I told lies all day yesterday and nothing bad happened to me. So they might think, oh, it doesn't matter. So Piasi says, it doesn't matter. And then there's this follower of the Buddha. His name is Kasapa. And he has a different view. And he asks um, and he says to uh, say, why are you, why are you like holding on to this view? Like, okay, maybe you might have it, but why are you really holding on to this view? And Piasi says, I'm not able to give it up. I'm not able to give up this view. And Kasapa says, why? And Piasi says, from for as long from my own birth onwards, for a long time I have been repeating this view, making it a firm habit. It's just habit. Just a, I just this is the way that I view the world and that's that's just the way I view it. And then Piety continues, he says, and King Basanity knows that I have these views. And if I were to let go of them, 
people would think that I was foolish. Or, you know, he's like concerned about his reputation. He's known as somebody who has these views and he doesn't want to change them because what will his friends think? <laughs> if he has a different view or not his friends, you know, other people that are influential or somehow. Have a... This is not so different than today, right? This way in which we want to hold on to these views because we belong to a community and that community has those views. So, if we were to give up those views, then people would talk, and maybe we'd even get kicked out or would have to leave. And I'm just making up these scenarios, but where we can see where this is relevant to us today. Uh, and I appreciate, you know, these are thousands of years ago. This is, uh, they're talking about this. And so, Kasapa says, well, some people will, um, can understand things with the use of a simile. Let me offer a simile of why you might not want to hold on to this view so much. And then this sutta is a collection of all kinds of similes that um, Kasapa gives to Payasi. I'm just going to share this one. So Kasapa starts by saying, in the distant past, a long time ago, so this is kind of like saying, once upon a time, there was a country and the population was afflicted by famine. And so there were two people One was a wise person, one was a not wise, we might say foolish person. And they both of them said, we are friends, so let us as friends go together, we'll leave this country and see if we can find some wealth or somehow bring something back to support our community, our family. So let's go together and find something. Hopefully we'll help. And... So they, in turn, so they left. And then after some time, they came to this, kind of in the sutta, it's described as a vacant pile. So I'm thinking of it as an empty lot. And there was this pile of hemp on the ground, you know, like this plant, you know, hemp, just a big pile of hemp on the ground. And the wise one told the not-so-wise one, oh, let's uh, take this and we can bring it back. Let's, you know, put this, load this up on our shoulders, our back, as much as we can carry, and we'll bring this back. Because there was nobody else around, for whatever reason. This is like abandoned, clearly abandoned. So it turns out not to be so easy to get it on their backs, and carry it, but they do. They put it on their back and they keep on walking. And then um, they come to a village. And they're walking on this village, and there they saw, abandoned on the ground, nobody around, clearly abandoned, some hemp thread. So hemp that had been treated and turned into thread. And the wise ones say, oh, what good luck for us. Here's hemp thread, which is finer, which is, you know, one more step in the treatment of it. Or let's take this. So the wise one, he puts down the hemp, and makes a, figures out how to carry the hemp thread and puts that on his back. But then the, the, um, the foolish one says, yeah, I've already taken the hemp. I, I've bound it up firmly, and it was kind of a hassle to put on and carry it. Pff, I'm just going to keep it. So then they walk further on, and then they come to this uh, pile of, again, completely abandoned hemp cloth. We know where this is going, right? So this cloth is even further developed. And the wise one says, oh, this is even finer. 
I'm going to put down the thread and pick up the cloth. Somebody's already weaved this into cloth. I'm going to carry this. Puts it on his back. The other person says, "Mm, no, I'm carrying this hemp. It's been heavy and was hard to get on, and I'm just going to keep on carrying it. This is actually Diana's addition that saying that it was heavy. (laughs) This is just in my mind, like carried all this is heavy. It doesn't actually say that in the sutta. but So then um, they walk further on, and then they see raw cotton, which is a little bit smoother than hemp. You know how this is going to go, right? The wise person's going to take off the hemp cloth and put on the cotton. The unwise one is going to say, no, I'm going to keep this hemp on my back. So raw cotton, and then they find cotton thread, and then cotton cloth. So, you know, this the wise one is taking off, putting on, taking off, putting on. And then it comes to copper, and then silver, and then gold. Come upon this pile of gold. This is a story, right? So they come on a pile of gold, and the wise one says, Wow, there's this large amount of gold. It's a supreme and massive treasure. You should drop the hemp. I'm going to drop the silver, which he had you know, picked up along the way. And together, we can take the, the gold. And we'll go back to our country, and we'll be able to support people with this. The unwise one says, Well, I've taken this hemp. I put it on my back. I don't really want to let it go. I'm just going to keep on carrying this. So the two return to the country, one carrying a bunch of gold, the other one carrying a bunch of hemp. And the person that returned home with that person uh, was carrying the gold. His family and everybody just received him and they were so delighted. Oh my goodness, this is perfect. This is great. Thank you so much. You've made a really big difference. And the wise one, he was delighted by this, that he could support them. That he was able to, you know, through these travails and these journeys to come back and to bring something. But then the unwise person said, oh, well, here's some hemp. And they weren't so glad to see him. (laughs) And he wasn't as delighted. In fact, he felt kind of sad because he wasn't able to support his family the ways that the the person who had picked up the gold was. So then, so Kasaba is telling this story to Piasi, and um, Kasaba interprets the, the simile. He says, Piasi, you should give up this view that there are no consequences to actions. Let it not increase your own suffering and vexation. You know, like the person who carried the hemp and who is firmly determined to not take the gold treasure. Right? So it, it, Kasapa is not leaving anything to interpretation. He's being very explicit. Don't be like the person who didn't take the gold. And Piusi says, no, I'm not willing to give up this view because I've often taught this view to others. So not only has it been a habit, not only does he have this reputation, but he's taught it to others. So he's so like uh, intertwined with it. And he says, everyone knows me as being a follower of this view. So not only is he holding on to it tightly, he's holding on to the identity. I'm the person that has this view. There's no consequences to actions. And then Kasapa gives a whole bunch of other similes. Some of them are, you know, colorful and crazy stories and I'm not going to give all of these. Maybe at another sutta, another talk, I'll give like one more of these or something. But 
But Piusy, he just refuses to budge, no matter with Kasapa. He's saying, you know, this, you know, you'll reduce your suffering if you can loosen your grip on this view. He's not saying that you have to completely get rid of the view. He's saying, just don't hold on to it. You might have this view, but just stop the kind of the clinging to it. So then at the end, uh, Kasapa's like, well, you know, I don't know what to do. I've given you all these similes and you're not going to change your mind. I'm sorry. And Piusy says, oh, <laughs> actually, I changed my mind way back then, but I wanted to see how many different similes you could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> So and I wanted to see, like, could you have how much wisdom you had? Could you do this? And and uh, Kasapa said, "Well, I don't know, Kasapa. Now I don't remember exactly what he said, but it's something like, well, don't hold on to these views." So it's kind of playful, right? There's this playfulness there. But something I like about this uh, story is this idea of sometimes we hold on to things, even though there might be something. That makes sense to us, but it's not easy to change our views. It's not easy to have a different idea about things, or it's not even easy to lessen our grip on views. So maybe I'll say just a little bit about, like, what are views? Maybe it's obvious what they are, but maybe... Uh, one way to think about it is it's a it's something like a private private in that it's like internal maybe a little bit partially hidden it's not something that we speak explicitly most often but this private idea about our experiences like what we experience like how we interact with the world and we're trying to make meaning out of them or we're trying to um make ourselves feel better in some kind of way. But I, I appreciate that uh, one person, a Buddhist scholar, he was uh, talking about how like views are kind of like memes. They're like something that just kind of get repeated and repeated and repeated. And through their repetition, they start to like maybe even proliferate. They're like little derivations of them and something that's you know catchy and just goes around and around and... And the purpose of the view is actually just to replicate itself, just to have more of the same. In some ways, kind of like memes are like this, right? They go viral on the internet, right? They Sometimes the purpose is just to... I don't know what the purpose is, actually. So there's this way that views, they gather this strength. They have this... They, and maybe I could even say the clinging to them becomes even stronger the more we adhere to them. And this word adhere refers to both maybe the way that we like this view and we're supporting it as much as the opposite. The more we dislike a view, the stronger it gets to in our mind. It's just the getting tangled up with it, either through liking or disliking, kind of encourages this clinging. Instead of like, okay, there's this view seems like there might not be consequences to actions because I know somebody who did terrible things and their, their life didn't seem so terrible. So maybe there aren't consequences to actions. But there's a way we can say, well, maybe there aren't. Instead of saying, because this happened, I know 
don't tell me otherwise. I have this view and everybody else is wrong. Instead, just to say, well, you know, it, it makes sense to me, but I'm not sure. But there's something about when we are doing this holding on to views that often we don't recognize. It's a little bit subtle, but it has a big impact on us. And that is, there's always a little bit of this agitation. Clinging itself only arises when there's agitation, then clinging gives rise to more agitation. But there's something about views, clinging to views, that in particular is because there's this way in which we, if we're clinging, we're saying, this is true, and anything that uh, negates this is wrong. This is true, and everything else is wrong. When we say that, there's a way in which we're trying to say, make something permanent. This is infallible. It's always like this. And we like to make things permanent because the world isn't permanent. And it feels uncomfortable. Sometimes we wish there were a place where we could land, <sighs> just rest and like, okay, this I can count on 100% of the time. We're always looking for that. It doesn't exist. So we make it up in our minds. It's just a thought It's like this. It can never be otherwise. This is what humans do. We always do. And we need to do this. It's part of maturation, of development, of becoming an adult, is uh, uh, taking on views and then discarding ones that don't work and taking on new ones. So I'm not saying that we never can have views. Right now, I'm pointing to the holding on to them. The insistence of saying, this is true, It's always true, and everything else is wrong. So there's this little bit of this agitation because things aren't permanent, and yet we're trying to like always find something permanent. But not only that, when we are sometimes holding on to saying this is true, piety maybe was saying that there are no consequences to actions, and he wasn't willing to give up that view because maybe there's this... uh, little sense of delight. I know. I know. I know. You guys don't know. I know. I got it. I got it. Yeah, you guys clearly don't know why, but I do. There's sometimes this sense of like this righteousness or this, uh, you know, me versus the world, us versus them. We got it. You guys don't. There's this tiny bit of like, Oh, yeah, look at us. Look at us. Look at me. There's a little bit of delight that happens in that. But then we start to discover, oh, yeah, we have to keep on propping that up. This idea that uh, I'm different than and better than everybody else. and It requires constant maintenance. Constant maintenance. And this is subtle. This is not something obvious, but this is subtle. We have to discard everything that might refute our view and make sure that everybody knows that we know this and all this, right? There's this real agitation associated with this. So this leads to more like craving and clinging and we just find ourselves in this loop. 
Maybe I'll slip in here that uh, today's Martin Luther King Day. We're kind of like honoring Martin Luther King and thinking about views and Martin Luther King. One way, not saying it's the only way or the best way, but one way we could consider some of the beautiful things that he had to offer the world or some different views. So it's like beautiful. Like he had the courage to say, I, I, everybody else is thinking this way. I think that racism is okay. Violence is okay. Thinking that love and care, that doesn't matter so much. It's a beautiful thing. To So he, he had some conviction, he definitely did. But he was sharing them in a way that I don't know, it feels like they had a flavor of love and care as opposed to, hey, look at me, look at what I have and what you guys don't have. So Martin Luther King, also talking about views. And the Buddha talked about views in a little bit different way than Kasapa did. And for me, one thing that's noteworthy is there's this uh, one sutta, this uh, scripture, the early Buddhist literature. It's the, if we were to look at like how the Pali canon, you know, kind of like the Buddhist literature, I'm going like this with my hands. It's probably even bigger than this. But uh, the very uh, first of the suttas is the, if they're organized in a particular way. So first, not first in terms of the first teaching ever given, but just when they got combined and put into books, the one that's the first one, is all about views. It's this, Brahma, the Brahmajala Sutta, it's, uh, there's uh, all kinds of stuff in this, there's a lot, lot of things in this, but it addresses the topic of views, and the Buddha's, you know, saying, you know, people, of course, they have these, these ideas, they want to know the answers, how did we get here? What happens after we die? What is the nature of this experience that's different than daily life experience? Is there something else? And of course, these have to be views because we don't know what happened before we got here. And we don't know what happens after we die. So the Buddha, he's pointing out that humans are always asking these type of views. And, and instead of like Kasapa, who was saying, well, you know, put down the hemp and take, eventually, you know, pick up gold, the Buddha is saying, well, actually, maybe you don't need to pick up any views. Maybe there's just, a, you know, views arise and then they pass away. It's, we hold this when it's helpful and we put it down when it's not helpful. We pick this other one that's helpful gravity, thinking about gravity, that's helpful most of the time. I'm not sure I can think of a time when it isn't, but... So, in this, uh, in the Brahmajala Sutta, in the Sutta, the Buddha um, talks about 62 different views. There's, you know, outlined, and I'm going to go through all 62. No, just kidding. Can you imagine? But we can uh, summarize them. But here, I think, is something that's really important. He's going through all these 62 views. He talks about um, 
the content of them, what they are about. Maybe I'll just give a little overview what they're about. The question of this, the nature of the self or the soul or some essence. Is there, that some people have this view that both the soul, the essence, and the universe are eternal. They just will never end. They just last forever and ever. Some, you know, religious teachings that have this idea. Or there's some uh, idea, well, there's partially eternal. Some things will last forever and other things won't. Heaven will last forever. Hell will last forever. But maybe beings won't last forever. Maybe some things will or some things don't. Or maybe there's this sense of, well, this universe or this existence, is it finite or is it infinite? Does it have edges? Does it end? anywhere the universe or is it just infinite and some people will say well it is finite and some people will say it's infinite and there are maybe they're saying some people are saying it doesn't matter it just things just arise out of pure chance it doesn't matter whether it is or isn't it's just a chance that We don't have to assign what happened before. Maybe it just arose at this moment. Maybe it'll end in the next moment. But for me, this is the favorite group of... uh, There's a number of of views. And these are views that are um, espoused or given by the eel wigglers. (laughs) These these eels that uh, wiggle. It's because these are people that like vacillate... Like, well, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, or I'm not sure. But I want to say a little bit more about this. It's because that they actually knew that they didn't know. But they didn't want to admit that they didn't know. So they were, like, afraid to lie and say, yes, I do know. Or they didn't want to be attached to their views. So they were trying to say, oh, oh, it's like this or it's like that. Or it's not really like anything. They were just trying to not say any views. Or they were afraid that others might discover that they didn't know. Even though, So they were trying to just be evasive. So... That's a, another group of views. There's a whole number of views that are kind of around that. And then there's views about the future, what happens after death. And theories about Nibbana. What is Nibbana? What is awakening? What is uh, enlightenment? So those are kind of the categories, and there's 62 in these different uh, categories. But I, for me, what's interesting is that the Buddha, he outlines all these maybe in a little systematic manner. And then he does not give a 63rd view. He doesn't. He just says there's all these views. And then he kind of like turns away from the whole idea of the content of the views, whether it's about the past or the future or what happens after death. He's more saying, he says, well, where do these views come from? Why do we have them? And here's something I think is very interesting. When I first read this, I was very interested in this. Of these 62, 20 of these come from meditative experiences. And there's this way we might think that, oh, my mind was 
when it was quiet, it came up with this view. So it must be clear, must be true, because my mind was quiet. It happened while I was on retreat. And there's this way that we can hold on to it. This is true and everything else is wrong. We ascribe some uh, particular meaning to it because of the conditions in which it arose. It might be true. But it might also not be true. For those of you who have been on retreats, you know that um, you meet with teachers regularly and you describe some of your uh, what's happening in your meditative experiences. And there have been more than once where something would happen. I thought, oh my gosh, wow, this must mean X, Y, and Z. And I march into the teacher's office. X, Y, and Z happened. And they're like, really? Why don't you describe that? And then when I describe what happened, they're like, mm, no. <laughs> this is not uncommon. So the Buddha is pointing out, even you know, with some of the views that arise from our meditation practices, don't cling to those either. But he's also pointing out, well, some of these views that we have are due to just reasoning. That somebody, just kind of like we have, creates a view through reasoning. We kind of like investigate it and inquire and just through our own intelligence say, well, it must be that beings um, don't survive after death or don't exist after death because no, nobody's ever come back to me that has died and said, hi, here I am, I'm actually dead, but uh, I'm coming back. And because they've all disappeared, uh, that must mean that they all disappear or something, right? This is a logical thing to say. And the Buddha is saying, don't cling to those views either. So he's pointing to, I think even in modern times, this is relatable, like we might think that, yeah, well, maybe some religious views we won't hold on to, but these other ones we will because they seem rational or because I had this meditative experience. He's saying, don't cling to views. And instead, he's saying that that there's this, uh, he said, look at, what causes views to arise? They arise from experiences that we have. That is, and we could use this word Vedana too. Some of you might know this. It's like something is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And if it's pleasant, we have this view like, oh, this is good and I want more. And there's a little bit of craving that shows up. Or this is bad, it's unpleasant, I don't want it, I want less. There's a little bit of pushing, which is the same thing as craving, just kind of like the flip side of it. So he's saying that, you know, our whole life is with these experiences, things that are pleasant, things that are unpleasant, and things that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and those that are neither unpleasant nor unpleasant, we tend to not even notice. We tend to just kind of like ignore those. Not always, but we tend to. But the Buddha is saying, why don't you examine this experience more closely? Why don't you look at it more closely? What's happening? And see that they're not as satisfying as we think. Sometimes we are holding on to things because they bring delight. And I'll say also the flip side, 
there's a way in which if we're really trying to push it away, that's a type of holding on to, being just getting tangled up with it. So this, there's this way that experiences do bring happiness and joy, because they do fulfill our desires. Of course they do. Of course they do. And there's nothing wrong with this. But if we were to examine it more closely, we would notice that things are not completely satisfactory. If we had this desire for chocolate ice cream, and we ate chocolate ice cream, like, okay, I've had enough. But there will be a time later in your life when you'll want chocolate ice cream again. Things aren't like completely satisfactory. Or then we start to eat the chocolate ice cream, we start to discover, oh my God, I have this sugar buzz and it makes me feel uncomfortable, all right? Oh, it's so cold, I have a brain freeze, or you know, whatever it is. It's not 100% completely satisfactory. And if we can notice that, we can appreciate the pleasure it brings without really holding on, without kind of like setting off this whole chain of craving. Because craving leads to clinging. And clinging often is clinging to a view. Sometimes that view is a view of a self. I'll talk about that at another time. But there's a way in which these are all related. But instead, if we were to notice that things arise and they pass away, they're not completely satisfactory in the way that we would want them to be. And not only that, they don't have this permanent substance. They're not like always the same, not always reliably there. If we were to notice those things about our experiences, then we'd be able to hold those experiences more lightly. And we wouldn't be attached to them And we wouldn't be making these views from them that we often get attached to also. So our experiences are giving, they're kind of like the fuel for the views. It's perfectly natural. Of course it is. And we need views to move through the world. But can can we not hold on to them tightly? And can we notice which views lead to more freedom? Which views lead to less freedom? Which ones bring more openness and spaciousness and ease in our life? And which ones don't? Is there a way? And what is this way, like to hold views lightly? What does that mean for I'm going like this with my hands opening with my palms uh, open. What would it be like to not... Say to everybody around you what your views are. Sometimes we spend time with family members, for example, and they have different views. What would it be like just to pay attention to them, acknowledge them, love them, care for them, and let them have different views? Instead of saying, well, you know, actually, it should be this, or, you know, it's that way, or something like this. That's one way to hold views lightly is, you know, because as soon as we start uh, 
sharing them with others in a way that, that uh, often sets up a me versus you and I know better and you should change your mind. It's kind of like implicit in there. Or maybe what their views, what they are saying makes us feel uncomfortable because we think it's really wrong. Or maybe they're pointing to something that's we don't like to see about ourselves, and it feels uncomfortable. So just to help uh, ease that sense of uncomfortableness, we say, well, no, actually the view, here's, here's how it is. Just to like, kind of like change the topic and make the, shift the energy. Some. Again, I'm not saying you can't ever talk about your views, but there can be a way in which we think sometimes with family members that we have to... Uh, just tell them, no, actually, my view is this. And what if we didn't? What if we didn't have to? Or what if we said, well, this is my current thinking because of X, Y, and Z. Or if, what if we said, well, can you tell me why? What, what, uh, what led you to have this view? And open up a conversation. And then there can be some intimacy and a way forward and, you know, something about this. Instead of this clinging to views, which doesn't lead to freedom. And the Buddha talks about how there's um, beings, humans. Partly the way that we're defined is by what we're attached to, what we're holding on to. If we think that, uh, I'm just making this up, if we think like football is the answer to everything, then we'll just be one that talks about football, wears football clothes, and uses football analogies for everything, and talks about, you know, the coaches, the players, I don't know, all these types of things. And so we'll be known as, oh yeah, that's the person who likes football. But what if we're not attached to anything? Again, I'm not saying that we don't have views or ideas because that's, that's not how to live one's life. I'm just saying not to be holding on to it, attached to it. And the Buddha is pointing to arhats and Buddhas. Those people who are completely awakened aren't attached to anything. So they're not defined in the usual way that we might define someone. Like the contents of our minds, right, spill out in our behavior, our words, our dress, places we go, places we don't go, you know, all these things. But what what would it be like to not be defined because we're not holding on? And this is the Buddha's answer to this question, well, what happens after death to somebody who is completely awakened? Same way we can't define them. This is tricky. I'm not going to pretend like I understand this completely. But there's something I like about this. I like that it's this pointing to how we limit things when we are saying, nope, it's this way. Because we're saying, well, it's not this way, it's this way. What if to say, you know, I don't know? Maybe that's okay. So, to not hold on to views. And, 
If we find ourselves not able to put down the view, maybe we can recognize that, oh yeah, this is hemp I have on my back, and like here's some hemp cloth. It's a little bit more refined. I think I'll carry this. Something like that. I think I'll end there, and I'll open it up to some questions and comments. This idea of holding on to views, not holding on to views. Thank you. That was great. <clears throat> um, sort of reminds me of something I heard about Einstein, that he was a pacifist during the First World War. But then he escaped Nazi aggression, came to America, and he advocated going to war against the Axis. And a lot of people from the press challenged him and said, well, you're inconsistent. Um, thought you were a pacifist. And he said uh, something like, I have updated my view based on new evidence. And I always thought that was, that was wonderful flexibility. Yeah. Right, and there's a lot, it's fascinating when now social media allows us to um, just get our own views that support our, uh, get, have evidence that supports our views, right? And just like not even come into contact with other views, other evidence, but yeah. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, right. To update our views with new evidence, new data. Anybody else have a comment? Oh, Nancy, back there. Thanks, Diana. Um, you were talking about. Uh, people who say that they don't see consequences for some things that go bad or there may or may not be consequences. And um, visual perception of what consequences are are not always where it is, though, right? Aren't the consequences really internal? And so evaluating those by external uh, views and what's happening with other people isn't really in a very accurate way of judging. I would agree. I would agree. If we're just looking from the outside, well, right? We could say, well, they seem happy, even though they did all these terrible things, but we don't really know what's going on inside of them. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Nancy. Okay, so thank you. Thank you all for your attention. And wish you safe travels as you go home. And maybe we can think about uh, the views. There's a view of uh, maybe supporting one another or being the change we want to see in the world, this type of thing. Something to hold on to, but not tightly or openly or softly, something like this. Thank you.